Well, hello and welcome to episode 166 of The Cool Room. Uh, it's your host, David Griffiths here, and I have just a couple of quick notes before we get underway with the recorded session that we have for you. Uh, a really interesting discussion with a really great mate. Uh, at least he's a great mate now, now that we've sat down for an hour and a half and talked about the amazing beers from Dissolver. We'll get onto that in a second, but just a couple of quick notes for you. First of which is that we have a special deal uh, that if you would like to have the beers that we're going to discuss in, uh, in the podcast today, uh, you can go to our online store uh, to search Cool Room Podcast Shopify and you'll find the Dissolver beers there. Uh, and if you enter the code word REAPER, uh, you can spell it any way that you like, effectively, as long as I can tell that you've written the word REAPER, uh, we will give you free shipping on the Dissolver beers until the end of the month of January in 2023. Uh, so that's a really good deal. You can be saving up to probably about $20 in postage, depending on where in Australia you are. Uh, and you get to experience some great beers. Very hard to get your hands on those beers in Australia. And I can assure you, having tasted them all now, uh, they are truly, truly delicious things. Uh, a bit of one-upmanship for you there if you're the kind of person who likes to get your hands on some rare, fun beers. Uh, so please go and do that uh, and take the opportunity to, uh, to enjoy those beers. And the second is just a reminder uh, that we uh, have a new different type of monthly subscription pack with just 12 beers in it. $99, get your hands on those and you can always have the right beers in front of you, whether you're joining us live or whether you're joining us uh, via the podcasts. We appreciate the fact you listen to the podcasts. Make sure that you uh, rate and review and subscribe to them so you never miss them. The episode that we have today, uh, I do have to say that there's a bit of background party noise in there. Uh, hopefully you'll be able to bear with it because the quality of the conversation in terms of the information that we are, that we talk about is really top notch. So I hope you get to enjoy all of that. Okie dokie, without any further ado, let's get over and start the recorded section of the podcast. Well, hello and welcome to episode 166 of The Cool Room. Uh, really exciting to be spending a Sunday afternoon Melbourne time uh, here chatting with some new friends uh, from the US. Uh, I'll get on to introducing them in a minute, but just a couple of very quick uh, things uh, for housekeeping. If you're listening to the podcast and you want to have the right beers from Dissolver in front of you, well, there are three that you're going to need today. They're Pyramid Games. Oops, or Reapers. And uh, finally, we're going to be finishing off with The Hustle is Broken. Uh, and you can get those three beers from any number of good beer retailers, I'm sure, but especially from our online Shopify store, which has the packs made up for all of the podcasts that we do. Uh, so jump online and grab some of those beers before you start to listen to the podcast if you get the chance. Uh, and while you're over there, you can also look at picking up the beers that we'll be doing for our next uh, show, which will be with Seven Mile Brewing from New South Wales. That was one of the ones that was requested uh, around New Year's when we asked punters to suggest which breweries they'd like to hear from. Seven Mile came out really clearly is one of those and so those beers are available from our online store as well check out our facebook check out our instagram so that you can make sure that you keep up to date with all of the upcoming events both the ones we have in the flesh and online and that will mean that you never miss out on an opportunity particularly if you're in australia to do something as cool as say 
Good afternoon, good evening, uh, Vince, over in America. How are you today? Uh, good afternoon, good evening, hello. Now, you're at a, uh, a party tonight at uh, one of your, your fellows over there with, with, for Mike's uh, birthday. We're going to talk a bit yeah. about Mike, I suspect, as the night goes on and his love of macro lagers and things, because he's chosen <laughs> not to be on the show, so we can say yes. what we like about him. Yeah, he's chosen. Uh, yeah, so it's his birthday is next week. So he's having a, a bit of a birthday party. So I stepped away for a hot second. So I can talk all the trash I want about him. It's not his birthday yet. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Look, let's kick off by telling us, we know you're sort of sitting in the back of Mike's house at the moment, but where in the US are you and what's it like over there at the moment? It's two o'clock on a sunny Sunday afternoon here in Melbourne, Australia, but very different where you are. Yes, we are. Uh, we're in Asheville, North Carolina, so we're in the southeast corner, not quite Florida, but uh, as close to Tennessee as you can get. Um, as we're very far west in North Carolina, uh, about six hours from the shore. Um, it is uh, 10 p.m. and uh, it's pretty cold. It's not quite zero, but we're going to get there tonight, which is exciting. That's uh, it's a very steep, steep contrast with the uh, with the afternoon that we're having here, but that's all right, and it makes it a uh, good drinking conditions over here for us. Hopefully, good drinking conditions for you as well. And we've got some great beers, as I just said, lined up there. So yeah, oh zero Celsius. I was trying to do the conversion. Uh, oh, even better. So that's uh, you, you, beautiful work. That's uh, we appreciate that, and it makes it a. Uh, <laughs> We're a little bit jealous on the hot days of uh, we've been having our 36, 37 degree sort of summer over here in the last few days. So uh, we're a little bit jealous of the idea of zero at times. Um, well, it, goes, it goes both ways, right? Like whatever, the grass is always greener. So if it's cold here and it's warm there, you know, you want a little bit of both. That's that's exactly right. <laughs> now, yeah. if we were if we were arriving in Asheville, what would we be seeing and particularly if we rocked up to the brewery, you know, give us a bit of an idea about what it looks like as we walk, as we walk in the front door, give us sort of the, what we'd be seeing and feeling if we were rocking up there, not at midnight or not at 10 a.m. 10 p.m. when it's going to be zero <laughs> degrees, but at a more normal time. Yeah. So uh, the Asheville is located in a valley in the Appalachian Mountains. So when you fly in, you just it is a breathtaking scene, um, just mountain range after mountain range after mountain range. And then it slowly becomes slightly urban, but we're a city, but we're also a city of like 90,000 people. It's not really like, a, it's a small town that kind of flexes like it's a city. The greater area is uh, the size of, the greater area is smaller than the greater Boston area, and we have less people than the metro Boston area. So the population density, even when you go outside the city, is pretty light. Um, uh, Asheville in and of itself is like you could walk corner to corner of downtown in about 10 minutes, 15, maybe 20, depending on where you're at. Um, it's pretty hilly, but it's beautiful. Um, mountain ranges and hills every which way. Tons and tons of beautiful foliage and trees, more hikes and swimming holes than you could throw a rock at. Um, but once you get into downtown, we're in historic downtown Asheville. So we're located in a building that was built in 1926. Um, the doors to our space were built in 1926, handmade, which is pretty cool. 
So I do you notice when you frequently ask questions about the brewery on the website is, uh, you know, will you sell the doors? And the end, so no way. Those, those doors are, are something to see. Yeah, they're like 18 foot solid oak doors, which is so cool. Um, so we did a lot of work in restoring the building. So we took a lot of the terracotta brick and stripped it down. We took a lot of the original brick and stripped it down kept as much of the original flooring as we could repurposed anything that we demoed as best we could in terms of like wood and brick and things like that. Um, so when you walk in, uh, do you guys have the term like a shotgun layout where it's, it's all very long. It's like a hallway almost. I've never, I, I totally understand what you mean, but I've never heard it. Never heard that particular expression before. Uh, it's probably a terrible American, uh, architectural expression, but, uh, essentially it just, um, it's like a very long um, hallway. So um, when you walk in, it's tap room on the right-hand side and then production on the left-hand side. So all the tanks and all the brew house, everything is exposed. Um, I cut my teeth brewing up in Boston and a lot of breweries were built that way out of necessity it was like, oh, well, we, you know, we don't have room or Boston is too, um, everything built on top of each other where you, you know, you don't, everything costs too much money to not have the production facility literally in the tap room. So uh, we wanted to kind of play off of that with the layout and just kind of make people feel like, you know, although we are, um, what's the hectoliter conversion? Uh, so we're about a 30 hectoliter brewery. Um, we wanted to make them feel like it's a little bit smaller and more, um, intimate so all the equipment and everything is exposed and i'll write up on you but we really like it it's cool it's look it looks like an amazing uh an amazing setup an amazing town as well so i always have a little bit of a google and a bit of a look around uh you know on the google maps and so forth before i start an interview um it allows me to find out all sorts of weird and wonderful facts like the uh the local baseball team now whether this is true or not but according to wikipedia are the Asheville tourists are the tourists a, a big thing over there or is that just something that yeah. wikipedia has told me that's a great name for a sports team it sounds like they have oh, no yeah. interest whatsoever in the sport like they're just going to turn up with cameras and <laughs> go for a wander around whatever city they're playing against yeah, the mascots uh, actually wearing like a terrible uh, like Hawaiian Florida print shirt. Oh, that's and, fantastic. And carrying a camera and has like tall socks, like the penultimate tourist. I was going to make a reference later on to some of your merch and how, how good, you know, your designs are. Well, you talk a lot more about design later on but I so now want an Asheville tourist t-shirt or something for Christmas. Oh, that'd be my, we can, go on my we can make that happen. Yeah, we can make that happen. <laughs> that uh, is but we, uh, so the, they're named the tourists because although we're a small town, so like 90,000 people, we get, sorry for the party. Uh, we get it's like okay, 12, How many yeah. people are at the party? I can't tell whether there's like a hundred people or whether there's three very, very noisy ones. Uh, 12, but they're playing charades. <laughs> <laughs> That's one, of the, uh, that's one of the noisier games of charades I've heard in a long time. Yes, it's a creative bunch. Uh, so, um, but yeah, we get like 12 million tourists a year. So the, the Asheville tourist is like kind of a nod to, we are a tourism economy. We are a, um, heavily reliant on tourism. Yeah. 
Look, that's fantastic. I look forward to learning a bit more both about the uh, the tourists, but particularly about the uh, the town as we go along. But we've got yeah. a great beer uh, here already in the glass. Uh, I'm already savouring it. We're kicking off with the Pyramid Games. Um, I guess the question, even before we uh, before we start to talk about the beer itself, is: Was there a particular reason why you chose the three beers that we're tasting, both? To, to be the ones that we're tasting uh, and also uh, to be the ones in that order? Is there a particular sort of thinking that goes behind that? For sure. Yeah. So um, Pyramid Games is first. It is our, I, we don't have like a core lineup per se. There are certain like um, repeat offenders or uh, like beers that will be brewed over and over again, but we don't necessarily have like a core outside of one beer, which is a Kolsch. Um, it's called Thank You for Existing. So Pyramid Games is the next most brewed beer that we've made. And uh, it's brewed with uh, Equinot, Sabro, and um, Idaho 7. And uh, each of those hops is bringing a different specific thing to the table. So we just have a very approachable base. Uh, it's a little bit fruity. It's a little bit dank. It's a little bit... Um, full-bodied and in terms of like Idaho 7 is bringing some more like berry fruit and then the Sabro is bringing some more like tropical almost like a creamy coconutty thing so it's just meant to hit on every level and be super approachable for everybody it's a slightly lower ABD um, slightly slight yeah slightly and uh, then Oops Reapers is a bigger beefier bolder version of that base recipe so more protein, uh, much bigger body, and then a significantly more complex hop bill. So it's really building on all of these different hops utilized at these different times. It's a, just a significantly more complex hazy IPA. And then uh, Hustle is Broken is very bitter, very malty, um, very resinous, very old school IPA. And I figured that that would be a good way to like finish it off is to just really ramp up the kill your taste buds. <laughs> no, look, we're, we're all, all for that. And we're looking forward to being going through all of those. I particularly, we're having a bit of a renaissance of West Coast IPAs over here. I don't know whether that's your experience as well. We'll talk more about them when we get to, uh, when we get to that bit of the proceedings. But uh, before Great. we go into the deep dive around the Pyramid Games, um, I was just sort of interested whether these beers sort of represent the kinds of uh, beers that you most sell over there or whether there was a bit of an eye to what beers would be good to ship to Australia, given there's a time period there, bit of a higher alcohol obviously makes them that sort of, you know, that little bit more stable and lasting. Was there a bit of a view to that or is this pretty much what we'd be getting if we were walking in, you know, and, and sitting down at the bar today? Yeah, we make a lot of hazy IPA. I was, um, I, started my career brewing beer in New England when New England IPA was a thing, um, was coming about. So we were, I started making hazy IPA. I've been making it for like 10 years. So we make quite a few of them, but it's more out of like habit and necessity. Um, a large amount of our production shockingly is lager and Kolsch. So we usually have like four plus lagers on and a Kolsch at any given time. Um, we do a decent amount of cask ale. So traditional okay. English cask ale that's always on at the pub. 
Um, but yeah, we do, we make quite a bit of hazy IPA, a decent amount of West Coast IPA, which is totally having a renaissance and I'd love to talk about that. Um, and then we do uh, wine, cider, um, and imperial stouts and some fruited sours. And the wine, cider, and imperial stout doesn't really leave the tap room. And the fruited sours, um, we just weren't sure that they were going to travel super, super well. So we didn't send too many of them down. Um, do you normally, like, when did you say the brewery started? It's still a relatively young enterprise, isn't it? And have you been doing that wide range of things right from the very beginning? Yeah, we didn't release wine and cider for the first year, but we've been making it since day one. That's amazing just to be able to have that much in your head right from the right from the very beginning, I've got to say. Yeah, I'm not sure how I do it either, if I'm being honest. We've got we've got a really good team and I have an undying urge to push forward. Um our team is incredible, like the team that we've got right now is incredible and we're all very, very, very focused on um, quality metrics, tracking things, um, cleanliness, just QA, QC is hyper important for a lot that we do. And that really tracks to the wine and cider and it's all natural wine and cider. So it's more mixed culture, funky, a little bit sour, um, but we're able to, we have amazing agricultural produce here in North Carolina. So all of our base malt, for all of our beers comes from within 500 miles of North Carolina or of Asheville. Um, it's a local maltster called Riverbend. They're right. amazing. Um, and then all of our uh, cider and wine, uh, all the grapes and apples come from within 500 miles of Asheville as well. And they're all organically farmed. Um, and we process them all in-house. It's pretty cool. You mentioned there the team. How many people are on the team? That always is one of those sort of things that gives us a bit of a feel for a for a brewery. You know, are we talking, you know, five people, 20 people, 180 people? Yeah, we've got, so we've got, uh, we just hired our 20th employee and um, we have three, four people on the full-time production team right now. We've got a Production lead focuses on brew house. We've got a packaging lead focuses on packaging. We've got a seller lead, which focuses on the just general process of everything moving through. And then we've got a seller technician who honestly does like maintenance and just helps keeps the lights on and then just keeps help move things moving forward. We've got a full-time sales team of three people, two full-time drivers and a sales director and then uh, a full design staff of three people at this point, my business partner being one of them, and then a sales or a general manager, an assistant general manager, and a slew of bartenders. So it's it's really interesting. It just gives you, I think it's one of those things that that little rundown gives a real feel for for what kind of business is happening. And even just sort of, you know, we'll, we'll talk design a lot more as we go along here. But just knowing there's three in-house designers, I think sort of there are plenty of breweries that have 20 employees, but they wouldn't have a single in-house designer, let alone three. So, you know, I think that yeah. already gives us a bit of a feel for where things are heading. Yes. There um, was a, 
There was a great oh. question here in the chat, I should say. So, you know, one of the great things about joining us online live, as I mentioned earlier on, is that you can type your questions in. Uh, and James, one of our very loyal listeners, has, has done that. We've got a really interesting question, and we know James loves his yeasts, uh, and that can be interpreted however people want to interpret it. But uh, he's asked, how do you balance the natural yeasts versus the... Well, it's harder to say than it should be after half a beer. The specific brewing yeasts are uh, in-house. And... um does that mean that there's no obviously no sort of crossover of yeasts or or yeah, is that not the we, case? So we actually have completely separate equipment. Like the gaskets are different colors and um, uh, a different material. So we use EPDM gaskets and then specifically treated silicone gaskets for the mixed culture side of things. The gaskets for clean or red or the hoses for clean or red, the hoses for funky or green. We have completely separate pumps that you literally can't even plug into the same pump. We had the um, outlet changed out. So uh, all the valves are completely different. Um, All the tri-clamps are different manufacturer. So you literally can't mix them up. And then they're also located in different areas of the brewery. So wine, cider, and mixed culture is all uh, natural and wild fermentation. And so we've never purchased a commercial culture for any of that, which is pretty cool. Um, a lot of it we like isolated uh, from nature or grew up from fruit fermentations over time. Um, actually, fun story, our lactobacillus that we use, uh, Harriet McCready of Mountain Culture isolated that in my backyard. That's amazing. I wouldn't have expected that. I didn't expect that one to be uh, to be coming out there. So any like just literally by putting out a sort of a not a full cool ship obviously but just like a little tray and collecting all uh, specific things no well we were opening up the brewery dj and harriet happened to be visiting Asheville because dj used to brew in Asheville a very long time ago and uh yeah they uh they like did they were like oh man well how are you collecting yeast and so i was like oh I just take a swab and then so we went around the neighborhood, swabbed a bunch of flowers, and the lactobacillus that we selected is the one that Harriet swabbed out of my backyard. It's crazy. That's amazing. And we always, you know, like all Australian shows of any kind, we love an Australian reference. So that, that, that'll go down a treat. We always talk about our sort of 8 p.m. scoops over here when we're recording in the evening, but that's our that's our 10.30 p.m. Asheville time scoop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then for uh, clean yeast, we have... Uh, very regimented procedures where we're harvesting. Um, we will spun the tank. So we'll actually close the tank off once it's pretty close to the end of fermentation to capture natural carbonation and um, the pressure and timeliness with which we're capturing these yeasts have helped to just keep our like clean yeast cultures alive. So we use large 32 gallon brinks. It's just a large vessel that we can harvest directly into with no soft hoses. And then we'll just repitch from there. So completely separate equipment, completely separate procedures. Um, I've, I've got to say that this this clean. clear eye that you have to process and production is really disappointing because what we love is stories of things going wrong. And it sounds like you've got it all figured <laughs> out, like so that even if I was wandering around the brewery, I wouldn't be capable of plugging the wrong thing into the wrong bit of machinery. Was there an experience in the past that made it clear to you that you had to have things so so absolutely yeah. non-interchangeable? Yes, a brewery that I used to work for, which I will not name, uh, 
It's all right. I'm, I'm just going to look up your, you know, I'll look up your LinkedIn yeah, that's fair, yeah, later that's... on and, just, and I'll just name them all. So Yeah. <laughs> it was a while ago, but uh, they found that they had a cross-contamination and it was showing up in every beer and they had to change out every hose and soft gasket in the entire brewery and then heat kill everything and then double caustic everything. It ended up taking them like... I want a couple of weeks of just like constantly making sure that everything was like done in order to not totally shut the whole place down. Um, that was like my ultimate nightmare story. It happened after I left. So, you know, we, we, but, we, uh, <laughs> so no responsibility. That wasn't, that wasn't your parting gift to the brewery. Yes. Yeah. 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 But uh, you know, it's uh, it really got me uh, thinking about process control and, the brewery that I was then at at the time, my mentor there um, was extremely, extremely neurotic about process control and you should be like a robot. And we brewed a lot of the same beers over and over and over again. And it was slow, methodical changes over time means like, you know, the quality of the beer is only going to increase if you're slowly, methodically changing things. So yeah, SOP, standard operating procedure for everything, all the time, always. It's uh, it's funny. We we love that contrast, and we see it in so many breweries where, you know, the cans look wild and sort of eccentric, and the beers are over the top, and you know, everyone wanders around in black t-shirts and everything. And yet, behind <laughs> it all, there's there's some really clear cut anal retentive processes occurring. Because if you don't get it right, the implications obviously are huge. Like you just can't afford to have that kind of mistake happening. Oh yeah. And like we have a, we leverage fairly high, like we expect quite a bit from our employees because we have all these standard operating procedures, but we have all these quality controls where the responsibility is put kind of on, it's a shared responsibility. Um, but then the benefits are, you know, we are able to do cool things because we have low loss and turnover, like uh, retirement plans, healthcare plans, paternity and maternity leave. And we're quite a small company. So it's th doing things like this and not having to factor in a loss because then we can see that loss as a gain. We can then just immediately put that back on employees. So it kind of comes full circle, um, but we found it's worked out pretty well. But yeah, tattoos and black t-shirts are very much still a thing also. <laughs> <laughs> We're all for that, even though I'm wearing a, a nice white shirt today. I've been off doing official Chinese New Year celebrations in the city today. So I've, uh, I've had to dress up and look kind of responsible compared to my normal appearance. This seems like a really good moment. We've still got a little bit of pyramid games in our glasses, hopefully, but probably a really good opportunity for us uh, over here in Australia. I don't know whether you've got the oops or reapers uh, over at your end or not, but let us open that up and have these side by side. And uh, let's let's talk about, if you can, first of all, that sort of notion that the base of the two beers is, you know, analogous, if not identical. And... Um, what we should be getting from that. And then we can start to talk about how you're riffing with the hops on top of that. Absolutely. And I'm going to pull up the bases of both beers on my phone so I can just double check. Oh, I see that's a level of professionalism that we do get from some Australian breweries, but not all, I have to say. Yeah. Um, so they both, um, here we go. We'll just talk amongst ourselves mm. in the meantime, so. 
Yeah, go for it. It'll take two seconds. I'm so sorry. That's okay. It sounds myself. like the charades is quietened down as well. So, so. They're probably they just, just changing games. <laughs> yeah, Mike, uh, Mike and so my business partner and his wife are both graphic designers. So the creative energy is quite high in this household. We understand. Um, That's a good thing. We're not, we're not anti that by any means. Oh, no, it's definitely a good thing. It's uh, always loud and lively all the time. All right, here we go. So, man, we brewed a lot of beers. Um, okay, <laughs> yeah. So um, the the malt bill on both are similar in such that we have um, wheat and oats, and we just kind of dialed up the. So we're using um, a wheat and an oat product. Um, but we I guess just for, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but just for sort of, no, go for it. I know the people who are in the room with us online today would totally understand why you would use two different types of grain. But for newer people who are listening to the podcast, perhaps, and perhaps less familiar with particularly the oats uh, in the bill, why, why include those? What are they bringing to what we're experiencing? For sure. So um, wheat and oats are both going to be a protein heavy malt. So we use a, our base malt, which is a two row, just normal um, Pilsner malt. And then that's malted to base specification. So you can think of it as eggshell white. It is, we are painting that canvas eggshell white. And then what wheat and oats are gonna do is they're going to add like a matte finish. They're just gonna soften it up quite a little, quite a bit. So rather than it being like a, um, a loud eggshell white, it just softens it, adds a little bit of a matte. So, uh, but in terms of mouthfeel, what that's doing is uh, both are fairly high in protein and dextrin. The oats that we use specifically are fairly high in dextrin. So what that's going to do is just uh, create longer chain dextrins that are then going to increase mouthfeel. But then twofold with that, you're also going to get um, more protein and dextrin in suspension so that the biotransformation for haze stability purposes is leveraged. So it just keeps them hazy makes them super full and fluffy. Um, oats will soften while wheat will um, create a fuller body, but also provide some form of character as well. So by using both, you kind of, um, it's like using an equalizer. You know, you, you don't just want to turn up the bass. You also want to turn up the treble and you want to balance everything out. So um, Pyramid Games has a lower protein content in total percentage than Reaper's. Um, so with Reapers, it's the, a fairly similar base. We threw in a little bit of extra wheat and kind of skewed the ratio a little bit, but it's all turned up quite a bit. So more wheat and oats means a fuller body. Um, and then we also mashed a little bit higher on the Reapers. So leaving a little bit of extra residual sugar to really bump up that body as well. So much more grain higher mash temp, much more protein, just really going for a bigger, bolder body so that we can slam more hops into it and have them all balance out. And, and can I ask, I'm obviously super keen to talk hops, but I didn't want to sort of yeah. go past that dextrin part as well, particularly because on the Pyramid Games, you've actually listed dextrin on the ingredients. And again, for, for newer people to the, to the craft brew world, first of all, yeah. not every brewery that uses sort of dextrin you know includes it specifically but can you explain what it is and, and why you've chosen to include it on your on your labeling uh yeah absolutely so it's going to add um it, it's an unfermentable so it's going to add uh mouthfeel and a 
essentially like a pop at the end. Um, it'll help keep the finish big and bold. Um, with hops specifically, what we found is that uh, adding a little bit of dextrin malt is going to just really help to round out that extra point of gravity. Um, it's going to help also with head retention. So um, unconverted sugar, long chain sugars are going to help with a little bit of that head retention, along with a couple other things that we're doing in terms of pH balance and stuff like that. But um, we find that it helps with head retention, helps build the body, helps keep that body and foam nice and big and tight and fluffy. Awesome. Now let's get to the bit that I've been hanging out to talk about. I feel like, you know, that I was explaining to my 11 year old son the other day that whenever I eat a meal, I always try to leave uh, a little bit of the thing that I like the most uh, to the end of the plate to finish off on. In terms of this beer, I've been hanging out to talk hops. We've got six different hops. Am I right in saying in this beer? Can you? Yes. We don't have to go through every one, but I guess what are the ones that really are uh, interesting that stand out compared to the beer that we just had? And um, what are they all bringing to the show? Why six? For sure. So, uh, so we were going to brew a beer uh, called Uppercuts and Laser Tag. It's another um, regular repeat offender that we have. We do, we brew it like once every other quarter. So twice a year. Um, but uh, I uh, messed up pretty hard and selected the grain bill for Reapers and had the initial dry hop for Reapers in the cooler so anyway, it was a like, oops, ah, it's all Reapers. So um, uh, it's a combination of hops. But as soon as we realized what the mistake that I had made on the production schedule was, we all got pretty intrigued because we liked what certain hops were doing with other hops. So we selected um, when to add which hops and what the um, what the blend was going to be at what time. So for instance, if you add Citra in the Whirlpool, if you add Citra in the first dry hop where it's got some active fermentation, and if you add Citra in a second dry hop, you're going to get different character from that. So Citra is doing something different at each step there. Same thing with Columbus. Columbus in the boil, in the Whirlpool, in the first dry hop, and the second dry hop is going to present as a dramatically different hop. So we chose this as like a, okay, cool. Well, we know which hops work and where. So what happens if we choose the hops that we like work with two separate beers, but we layer those on top of each other. So it's more about like hop process and then, okay, cool. So we like Citra in that first dry hop, but what if we layer, like we also really like Columbus in that first dry hop. So what if we layer both of those? Can we get like super dank and super juicy, or are we going to like mute the dankness out and pull more fruity character out of the Columbus? So this was a, a bit of an experiment with what we liked and where and to see like, okay, cool. Well, what happens if we like really turn that dial again up to like 11 with how we're adding and when we're adding and kind of geek out on it. And I think it turned out great. It's got like a lot of everything going on the whole time. Absolutely. And uh, you've included some of my absolute favorites in there as well. I've got to say with the, uh, the Ella and the, but especially the Nelson Savant, it's a, it's a hop that is super hard to get over here in Australia. We often hear from uh, Australian brewers that they want to use it, but they end up having to use something else instead. Is it easy enough yeah. to get over where you are, or is it one of those ones that's sort of a, a special occasion hop? Um, so I have been in love with Nelson for the better part of my entire career. 
So uh, we contract for it and I use it very sparingly. I use it like saffron, you know, you like hold on to it for a special occasion, you keep it in the cupboard. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, a bunch of bigger breweries bought bigger lots for sure. Um, I, I, th I think this... James in the chat is alleging a particular brewery did for the, uh, <laughs> that's why you need to be here looking at the chat to find yes. out what he said. I'm not going to name names. <laughs> but uh what we did find was that, um, so we use Crosby hops. It's a hop purveyor that's based out of, uh, I believe they're out of Oregon. Yes. And what they did was they partnered with a couple different farms, um, Hop Revolution, and they get specific lots of those hops. And then they're actually bringing them over and making cryo pellets. So, um, I don't know if y'all are familiar with that. Um, well, again, in the Zoom room we are, but give us the, the take and remind newer listeners about what we're dealing with there because it's a, a, there's a number of different ways that you can obviously get your hot products into the brewery, isn't there? Yes, yeah. So normally they would come in as like a whole leaf and then they would go through the pelletizing process, which is just grinding them up and turning them into pellets, uh, removing like some very large vegetal material, but by and large keeping all of the oil and all of the hot material together. So what then you can do is you can freeze that before you, right before you pelletize it, you can cryogenically freeze it, essentially freeze it with liquid CO2 um, and then push it through a blower where the oil is going to be lighter than the vegetal matter. And you can separate out the oils and the vegetal matter and concentrate it further. So you think of it as like a hash of sorts, but hyper cold. So you're still preserving all of the aroma and removing a lot of that vegetal matter. So you're essentially like hyper-concentrating a hop character. So Nelson has never been made this way because it's grown in the Southern Hemisphere and a lot of these cryogenic processing plants are in Washington um, or Oregon. They're in the Pacific Northwest of the US. I think Canada might have a processing. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So uh, anyway, this hasn't really been used before. So we um, got selected to be one of the first to utilize this Nelson cryo product called CGX. And it brought like, what we've seen with Citra is it like really dials the mango up on that. What we've seen with Mosaic is it really dials the berry character up on that. And what we saw with Nelson was not what we expected. We really expected that like grape character to get dialed up, but that got dialed up along with the dankness. So it has this like really big, punchy Nelson, like old school Nelson character before it got bred to be the super fruity one that it is now. It's pretty cool. That's a, that's a really amazingly cool story. Obviously, you know, we we love our hop talk here. James has asked in the room about, you know, the fact that you're using a, a mix there of, you know, US, Australian, New Zealand hops. Is it a, is it a bit of a reflection of uh, favourite hops that you wanted to use in this one or that there was a real sort of desire to pick the ones that would integrate together you haven't you haven't left many hops out i've got to say so it's not like you've <laughs> yeah we uh so i have this uh very big affinity for the depth and complexity that you can get from layering us new zealand and australian hops kind of all on top of each other because they're all going to hit at different levels because of the terroir that the the climate that they're grown in you're essentially selecting certain oil compositions because of um, the soil, uh, the sunlight, the temperature, the time frame, everything. 
So um, also elevation, also like just wind. Um, yeah, I would have thrown some like UK hops in if it wasn't all like green tea and dirt, which I love Fuggles, <laughs> don't get me wrong, but. Uh... <laughs> yeah, direct door correspondence from the, uh, from the UK directly over to North Carolina on this front. We don't, we, you don't need to send it via Australia. <laughs> Do you get but, one uh, of the... Uh, no, I was just going to say, we find that the like layered complexity is uh, you can't really get the super bright tropical character that you get from some of the New Zealand stuff from the US or Australia. And you can't get some of this like very specific uh, papaya, pineapple, passion fruit um, that you can get from the Australian stuff from anywhere else. So it's just really cool to be able to have that opportunity to really layer on top and see how crazy we can go with it. We, uh, we speak and often get jealous of, uh, us brewers when they talk about the opportunity they have, particularly if they're sourcing locally to go out to the farms and locations where things are being grown and to sort of visit the hops or the, the grains where they're being grown and make specific selections. Do you get the opportunity to go and do that? And to sort of see that difference that that hops can have from you know across an entire farm, but specific rows or as you say elevations produce different top hops even within the same variety. So uh, we have been asked to go out a couple of times, but um, we're so small that I mean we're not our total hop usage is about six thousand pounds a year. So um, which grand scheme of things like normally when you um will select a lot they want you to select about two thousand pounds so we we just don't have enough purchasing power um but we work with our suppliers well enough where it's like okay cool well if i'm gonna buy this amount of this hop for next year i'm gonna contract on it i want it from the same farm or the same lot or i didn't like this or i did like that so they can help us to kind of weave in and out of where we want to be. Um, so the, the purchasing power that we get isn't that great. But the crazier thing is that um, Haas, one of the, Barth Haas, one of the hop growers, has a ridiculous, ridiculous, like technical lab setup, And they go through like quite a bit of quantitative and qualitative assessments every year on all of these different lots and produce tons and tons of data. And then they have a lab that is literally just built for just research. And he put out a paper, one of the guys there put out a paper recently that the R value on correlation from rubbing the hops in the field to working with the hops is zero. So the, the process of which they change, like if you get super mango, there's almost a 0% chance that you're going to get super mango uh, in the processed pellet You'll get other characters that are kind of sort of in that vein, but it won't be the same characters that you got from rubbing it because of the temperature change, time, degradation via oxygen, the oxidative qualities of the hops. It's pretty cool. So we were like, when I heard that, I was like, oh, then I'll just tell you what I want and you'll tell me what lot is that? Great, cool. I saved myself a plane trip. Sounds great. It's pretty amazing. It really is. And again, I think sort of shows we've got some amazing producers here in Australia. Uh, don't get me wrong, but just that sort of technological approach. Uh, there's bits that when we, we hear about those sort of stories from the US, uh, yeah. properly amazing. 
Uh, I feel like, you know, normally we sort of use this section to sort of hear about a brewer's story and journey from the very beginning, already recognising that there's now numerous breweries that you've been at that we're not going to be able to talk about uh, for various reasons. So I'm interested to sort of see who does and doesn't remain in this. But do you, like, for instance, remember the first craft beer that you had? Where did the journey start for you as a person who's now, you know, living the life of, a, of running a, a fantastic craft brewery? Yes. Uh, the first craft beer that I ever had was... It was one of two things. I don't think that um, what I would typically say is the first one is even a craft beer anymore, but uh, it was either uh, Sam Adams, um, just like yep. American macro lager at its finest, uh, or Allagash White. I don't know if that makes its way down to Australia at all. We, we know of it. I wouldn't say that we, we don't see a lot of it at the moment, I've got to say, but. Yeah, I, uh, I grew up in New England, so it was like everywhere. And uh it is crazy how much of that beer they still sell. Um, and, but, and, is, and are they the ones or was there a beer that sort of came after that where there was an aha moment of, oh, no, hang on, this is different. I understand now why people love craft beers. Yes, it was the uh, Franciscaner uh, Hef. Um, that was the first beer that, like, truly blew my mind. I started working at a liquor store, which is where I met Mike my business partner and uh i had like was it, now, now, come on of... you can tell you can tell the story about meeting him however you like was he stumbling in at 11 30 you know into the liquor store you know just looking for a bottle of southern comfort or something <laughs> or what was yeah we we both blatantly took the job because it was 50 off of booze and 30 percent off of beer so yeah it was we were like yeah, he was working not a customer time. that's all we needed to establish out yes. of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it doesn't mean that he was totally sober. We were both in college and yeah, at the time, um, uh, parties were pretty rampant, but, uh, the craft beer, like director at the time was like, Hey, if you haven't had, um, this, if you have never had Franciscaner today is going to be like a killer sunset, go sit on your porch, pour this into a glass, don't talk to anyone for like 10 minutes and just like take this in. And that was my first like, oh shit moment with craft beer. That's a pretty amazing bit of advice to get. I mean, you know, not every, not everyone sort of gets that advice from, from when they're into the industry. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I liked it. So, uh, sure, someone... it's going crazy. Yeah, no, that's all good. So, and then, so did you, have you always sort of worked in the hospo side of that industry from there on, or did you do go into home brewing? What was sort of, as you started to figure out, oh no, this is something that is more than just a college, you know, way to earn some, some beer money. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, I lived in a house with 12, 11 other guys. So there were 12 of us total in college at this time. And so uh, I would just... There's a lot, of, there's a lot of shaking of heads going on in the room and I'm wondering what kind of stories we're going to get here. So let's, um, let's just strap in. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we ran a, an underground music venue out of our basement. Um, <laughs> and we were like, oh, well, I was working at the liquor store and I was like, well, you know, even with my discount, I bet that it's cheaper if we make our own beer horrible like absolutely not true uh but that's what got us starting it started into home brewing so i was drunk with a bunch of the uh guys that i lived with and they didn't really make like mix packs at the time so everybody would buy a couple of six packs and then we would all trade beers and like make our own mix packs um and i had a 
a cherry wheat ale from an unnamed, I will not name the brewery, but it was like the worst beer I've ever had. And I was like, see, this is like the perfect example. I could make beer that's better than this and it would be cheaper. And so that was, I took a bet, a $50 bet, and then spent like $300 on homebrewing supplies <laughs> and made to this day, the worst beer that I have ever made in my life. And uh, Mike had some of it and was like this is a terrible idea you should stop this now and uh it like lit a fire under our asses to for the next couple of years we just like read every book under the sun and uh it was a for the record it was a brown ale and it was it just tasted like used band-aids and dirty pennies and it was like just the grossest possible yeah the the reason why james is asking the question about whether it contained gravy or not is because i have made both gravy beers and chicken beers so there's there's nothing that's off limits you know here you know so you've already shown a level of judgment by not including gravy in your beer well our our, uh, our original homebrew club had a garlic beer competition uh we're like you have to drink like multiple garlic <laughs> beers and judge them it was terrible i've got to say this i i i am so grateful to all of our podcast listeners i love you dearly i love the support and i love the messages but there's some things that you can only get by being in the zoom room and the looks on the faces in the zoom room when you mentioned the garlic beer competition there it's just there's a level of pricelessness in that (laughs) i think you know just because you can brew with something doesn't necessarily mean that you should that is worth putting on a t-shirt i'll sp- i'll get that on a t-shirt for you and send that over in in uh, in compensation for my uh, Asheville tourists t-shirt um yes now i mean just to know when you went and bought your 300 dollars worth of brewing equipment are we already seeing the signs there of someone who wants to do things the right way so you're not going down to the local hardware store and buying a big plastic bucket and stuff like that you're you're already you've got an idea in mind as to how this is done properly or was it all a bit more random uh so i went down to um i like googled uh or it might have even been like ask jeeves back then this is like uh 13 years ago that's aging you more than what your first craft beer was (laughs) Yeah. So, so and, and you got uh, taken to a GeoCities site where <laughs> Yes, there was a GeoCities site. Um so uh anyway, we started looking up like, oh, how to brew your own beer, blah blah blah. So I found like, well, you know, you don't want to use extract, you want to use grains, and then this is the kind of the equipment that you need. So we did a steeped grain extract combo as like our first trial run and uh even the like $300 was like not enough of the right equipment. Like we could instantly tell like, none of this is sanitary. This is crazy. Um, and so, so, so perhaps a bit less money on actual equipment and a bit more money just on some oxygen peroxide or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was like, we bought a big pot for like a hundred bucks. And then like, it was like the stove wasn't big enough to heat this pot. <laughs> so we had to buy like an electric burner that we jammed into the pot. It was like a whole thing. And then we uh, we eventually went and got and spent like a significant amount more money and bought like a three tier gravity fed 15 or 18 gallon brewing system so we could get 15 gallons every time. Um, and that was like that was the turning point. But uh, I must have spent easy a year and a half to two years like grabbing every book from every brewing program that I could. I would just look up what the syllabus was. 
and then purchase all the books and then read through everything. And then any friends that I had in the program, I was like, send me your study syllabus, and like send me your practice tests. So I didn't go to brewing school, which uh, I just didn't have the luxury. I couldn't afford it or the time off at the time. So self-taught, but we uh, joined a homebrew club and they were like very, very, very helpful and just pointing us in the right direction and saying like, these are the things that you should be doing. These are the things that you shouldn't be doing. And it was great. It was a, a very long like trial by fire period for us. And were you still, st- were you studying at this stage and studying something else or is it all re- You know, was this more or less a, a life choice reasonably early that this is the direction and the career you're going to be sort of following through with? No, I thought I was in IT. I, uh, uh, I in- that's our favorite. We, it's a- yeah. I was in network management for uh, the corporate internal auditing side of Fidelity, the investment company. Um, I did that all through college, uh, two years in college, two years after. And then um, I just had a, I couldn't do it anymore. It was before the neck and hand tattoos. So I fit in a little bit better there. And uh, I just couldn't really do it anymore. And Mike had been doing the graphic design thing for the whole time and so that shift for him was you know he's still doing his thing but I went from IT to brewing and I I went to school for business and um, like knew how to run accounting and all the breweries that I worked for over time I had like either had interest or had a connection to so when I decided to leave finance that was the like I'm just not happy doing this. I know that I like beer. I know that I know how to like kind of sort of figure out the business side of things. So I'll work for a couple other people, build up my business chops and like see how the business is run and then uh, mess up on somebody else's dime quite a bit. And then once I'm done, once I feel like I'm done messing up, then we'll open our thing. And that was how we started. Is there one bit of advice you'd give to homebrewers? We have so many homebrewers who listen here. Uh, not necessarily about making the jump to having your own brewery, although so many want to do that, but even just yeah. as a home brewer, apart from sanitize everything properly, which is, you yes. know, clearly probably just number one bit of advice. Is there anything yeah. else that, you know, you think home brewers would benefit? What do you wish someone had said to you when you were just starting out that journey? Okay. So the first thing that uh, I did was I went and asked uh, Will Myers, who was the head brewer. I think he still is the head brewer at Cambridge Brewing Company. It was a brewing company in Boston. I want to say they're like 32 years old now. They've Mm -hmm. been around for a while. Um, I asked him like, hey, how do I get into the brewing industry? I've been homebrewing. And he sent me this really long email. Well, first he was like, it's really hard. And that was the only answer that I got. And then I went back and dropped off my email and was like, if you have any advice, let me know. And it was like a couple weeks later, he sent me this very lengthy, well thought out email that was like, a couple different things to do and one the first thing was every book that you can get your hands on read it like you need to fully understand from like a chemical organic chemistry composition like exactly what is happening and from there it will dictate everything else that you're doing like if you can understand what's happening on like a microbiological level and you understand the chemistry of everything you understand how caustic and cleaning chemicals work and why they work. You understand how the sanitizing chemicals work, why they work, how the yeast works, what it's doing, what you need to do, temperature control, things like that. Like if you can truly understand the nuts and bolts of everything that's happening, everything else is pretty easy to understand. 
So I just approached it from an organ. I literally bought a yeast health and organic chemistry book. And that was the first thing that I read. And then learned and as did much people as I could look at you water. strangely when you sat in the local cafe reading your yeast health and so forth book? Was that a you know, was, yeah. it, was that something you wrapped a Playboy magazine around so that nobody would see <laughs> that you were, you know, reading about yeasts? The there's like a running joke that whenever somebody asks my sister, like, oh, so your brother owns a brewery, she's like, Yeah, he read an 800 page book on water, just water. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think it's like hyper important is, um, uh, if you, if you're going to do this, you know, understand as much as you possibly can, because that's the basics of everything that you're doing. Like there, it is so complex fermentation. And if you are just like understanding it from a thousand foot view, you're missing out on all of the beauty of all of the intricacies that are happening there. It's pretty cool. It's a, it's a great answer. And, you know, I've, very genuinely as someone who's both been in the industry, but also, you know, 166 podcast episodes in, I'm still finding new things and, and learning new things. And I think we often get explanations here that scientists and brewers are still learning new things as well. And I think that's the fascinating bit about it, that it's not a closed book. There's still chapters being written as we understand more, particularly about the new hops and how they interact with the new yeasts and things like that. There's a whole lot of stuff happening there that just wasn't understood 20 years ago. Yeah. Or like we have access to technology now that's allowing us to like, now there is a pourable hop product that they're back adding polyphenols in. So you can use it at any portion of the hop the hopping process, but with literally zero loss. And it's pourable, so you don't have to like heat it up or, I mean, it's just, if you had told me that that product was going to exist like 10 years ago, and then I could dry hop at an equivalent of like 15 pounds per barrel without hop burn, I would laugh you out of the room. Also, it's like cost ineffective to do that. But it's really cool that like the boundaries are being pushed to the point where now, like even with terpenes and things like that, like things are being isolated so specifically it's just really cool. It's never been like a cooler time to be able to brew. Yeah, absolutely right. And uh, But I will say for Mark, who's typed into the chat here, that, you know, we still do love the magic yeast stick, which Norwegian people, brew, you know, use to stir and the idea of yelling, <laughs> yelling into the fermenter first to scare out the demons and stuff like that. We're yeah. all about that as well. There's a there's the arts as well as the science element of all of this. Yeah, well, you got to yell the yeast. That's organic chemistry 101. You got <laughs> to scare the demons out. Um, we've mentioned the fact that we can't talk about all the breweries that you've been at, but is there perhaps one lesson or you know, from a particular brewery that you learned along the way through that going and uh, exploring other breweries before you opened your own that still sticks with you or that, again, you know, you'd, you'd pass on? You know, is, was there a particular time where you just, had a had a learning moment i guess at one of those breweries along the way and feel free to mention oh. their name or not as the case might be <laughs> yeah i think uh the one learning moment that i i would say the one thing that stuck with me at every brewery is it doesn't matter what we think we're doing well sales is going to dictate what we're doing well and um so the first brewery that i worked at like it wasn't all of our favorite beer, but we made it more than anything else. And it was a habanero rye agave ale um, at uh, Night Shift Brewing. Like not our favorite beer, but we literally couldn't make enough of it for like an eight month period. It was crazy. And then 
we really wanted uh, our like house IPA to be the flagship at Lord Hobo. And then we started making a, a session IPA and it took off like wildfire. And then we really wanted a specific IPA to be a mainstay while I was a burial. And it very quickly faded into oblivion. And an IPA that we brewed as like a lark was asked for over and over and over again and is now one of their flagship IPAs. So I think it's a... Uh, and then like for us, I never wanted to brew a cheesecake fruited sour. And now I quite literally can't keep it off of the production schedule because when we don't have it, people come and ask for it. It's like killing my soul that I make so much of it. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't matter. It's like what keeps the lights on. So the sales are going to dictate your taste matters and everything should be crafted to as high a quality as it possibly can be. But it doesn't matter if it's your favorite thing or not. If it was up to me, we would make Hefeweizen, but I can't sell Hefeweizen for my life. So uh, where we are, instead, I can make a bunch of Kolsch and I can sell English Mild and I can sell a pub ale and I can do all these other things. So if you're focusing on like only brewing what you want to drink, that's not going to be a good thing. That's a, that's a great answer. You're being really generous with your time and I don't want to push the friendship because I know the party's going on next door. But if it's okay, we might press pause for a couple of minutes so you can go and check in on the party so that we can clean our glasses and we'll come back and talk about The Hustle is Broken and talk about the revival of West Coast IPAs. Sounds great. Well, we're back here with episode 166 with Vince, not Mike, from Dissolver Brewing. Uh, he's being very generous with his time. We're heading towards midnight over in Asheville uh, in North Carolina. We're heading towards four o'clock here in Melbourne, Australia. We had a great chat during the break uh, here in the live Zoom room, and you missed out on that because you're listening to the podcast version rather than joining us live on Zoom. Uh, one of the things that we referenced uh, for people who've missed some of the recent podcasts is our recent trip out to Hawkers. We had an awesome time out there. And one of the things that Maz from Hawkers was talking about was his Sheer Terroir series, uh, where he was working with different versions of the same hop in the same beer uh, and from different locations, as the name suggests. Uh, that beer has just been released. We've heard and was drinking very nicely down at the Geelong Beer Festival on the weekend. Uh, I think it's a fascinating concept. And if you can be somewhere where those beers are available, get onto them. They're probably sold out at the brewery already, uh, which speaks both to the quality of the beer itself, I'm sure, and to the interesting nature of that idea. Uh, he's using, I think, a West Coast IPA for that kind of beer. We're about to open. The Hustle is Broken from Dissolver, a West Coast IPA. Let's open that beautiful beer and hear the sound of that being opened. Oh, that's magic just in and of itself. Can we go on a little tasting tour here, please, Vince? What should it look like in the glass? What should we be smelling, smelling on the nose? And how should it be tasting for us? Yes. So uh, the Hustle is Broken is our regularly recurring West Coast IPA. Um, so we're going to be seeing definitely more malt character instead of being a big pillowy Play-Doh looking uh, glass of orange juice. It should be pretty clear uh, with a little bit more of a hinge of, uh, I wouldn't say orange but closer like a little bit more orange in there a little bit more burnt orange going on um so it's going to have more malt presence and then the nose is going to be significantly more dank 
than um, anything that we've really opened prior. Um, yeah, almost like a reddish hue to it. Um, but uh, the nose is uh, a little bit more Columbus and Centennial driven with um, Mosaic being the, and Cascade really being the predominant other flavor profile. So we're playing on um, a little bit more of that like old school American IPA, but taking a new school approach in terms of pH, hop timing, hop load and total hop load. Um, yeah, just a, a new riff on an old style. Absolutely, because you're using some very traditional hops there, at least, you know, traditional in the sense of West Coast IPAs. Um, you know, we always sort of, one of my trivia questions when I run beer trivia is, you know, name me four hops that start with C. Well, you've gone a fair way into, uh, into meeting that uh, answer just in this beer alone. Yeah, we, uh, <laughs> we have been like itching for all of our on the production team all of our favorite hops are the sea hot the classic sea hops but it's so difficult to find a well-executed fresh version of those hops and it, they don't really pair well with big hazy ipas because you want them to be like bigger sweeter bolder so that doesn't necessarily pair well with like this tastes like a bag of weed um or <laughs> so i'm we, told or so i'm told yeah uh so <laughs> allegedly so so uh we really wanted to start playing with that a little bit more and so it was like a real push for us and it's been done for so long so the hustle is the name of the the series so the hustle is broken hangry heartbreak things like it's all uh, a negative uh verb or adjective yeah um Again, you know, for, for newer listeners, can you perhaps explain a little bit about, you know, where the West Coast IPA comes from uh, and the history of it, I guess? I'm going to yeah, say sure. th 36, 37 years based on when uh, Sierra Nevada first brewed their one. But just as a general concept, you know, can you give us a yeah. more version of the rundown of that story? Absolutely. So West Coast IPA uh, was essentially born on the West Coast of the United States. Um Chico, California, Northern California really was the, the bigger thing for it. Um, Sierra Nevada was putting more hops into beer, which in today's standard is like a laughable low amount of hops. But uh, they were making like big, bitter, malty beers. Um, yeah, this is like almost four decades ago now. And uh, other breweries in that area started really riffing on that. And then as the craft beer scene grew and hop processing kind of grew, it California always had this like California, Oregon, Washington always had this baseline of bitter malty beers, whether it was an IPA or a double IPA or a pale ale or whatever, it was always bitter and malty. And then as it moved further East Coast, one thing led to another over time and it started to get like slightly less malty, slightly more juicy, more hot products started to come out. And as the East coast was looking to like make a name for itself, that was where like new England IPA kind of came out. But West coast IPA has always been this like, well, this is just what we've always brewed. So it's always like malty, bitter, full bodied um, in terms of hop character, but very, very like bone dry in terms of malt character. So it's always been this like palate ripper of a, a product. And we uh, 
it doesn't get brewed that much um, near us outside of Sierra Nevada. Um, so because we're on the East Coast, it's not like a, not everybody here grew up on West Coast IPA. So uh, yeah, just wanted to bring that back. And um, James asked if we adjust our water. Um, we dramatically adjust water for every beer that we make. Water is like, we start at the forefront, we're paying attention to um, temperature, even all the way down to like dry hopping. And then we're also paying attention to salt content, pH, where we're adding that pH or increasing, decreasing, doing whatever. Um, water is, uh, again, it's like if you're talking about beer from an organic chemistry composition, it's water is the predominant ingredient in beer. It's funny, that's a, a good reason for me just to remind people to go back and listen to episode 165, uh, where we had Ocean Reach Brewing from Victoria on, and a lot of the conversation we had there, again, was on similar lines. It's funny how these ideas perhaps bubble into our consciousness here in the in the cool room, but um, we've been doing a lot of water talk lately, and it's just one of those things that perhaps we don't talk about it for 10 episodes, and then we go, no, hang on. You know, there's more, there is far more to brewing than just hops, yeast. Uh, you know, malt, the water is that fundamental component. I think you've made that point really well today a couple of, a couple of times over. I'm also fascinated, can I say, that, you know, you talk about this being a palate ripper and, and so forth. And it's, you know, it's very clearly a West Coast IPA, but it's not for us, or at least for me, completely over the top or ridiculous. Oh. Not, you know, this is a drinkable beer i can have a few of these without any sort of without any sort of unhappiness it's not like something that is so over the top as to be you know a, a drink almost like one of those chili eating contests it's nothing like that yeah well uh thank you very much this is very kind um but we we drinkability is number one always so the with any beer that we make we always want to have you be able to go back and reach for a second one with a fair amount of confidence so we, the first couple of West Coast that we were dabbling with and um, it was a little bit too bitter. So we were shooting for like, I want to say 90 IBUs the first couple rounds. And then we've dwindled. I think we're sitting pretty comfortably around like 65 or 70, but I'd have to go back and get it tested again. Um, but yeah, we found that like, you can dial up that bitterness and then you only dial it up to a certain point before you start to lose some of that mosaic character, that like mid palette mosaic character, not the like classic berry that everybody kind of associates with it, but mosaic brings a level of dankness to it that when paired with Centennial and Columbus, like mosaic was one of the first like new school, mosaic's been around for a really long time. Same thing with Citra it was used as an accent hop for so long because it is like this weird camo. It can be dank, it can be fruity, it can be whatever. So we found that like the more bitter we made it, the like berries aren't bitter. So you kind of lose a little bit of that flavor. So we just kept toning that down until we found this like harmonious balance. Um, we could talk about this beer a lot, but I'm conscious both of the time, but also the fact that we've only really touched on the, the design components of, of this beer uh, and your brewery in generally, uh, a little bit as we've gone along here, I've had so many customers who have bought these beers because of the labels and because yeah. of the names of the beers. Let's talk a bit more about that, but let's just kick off with 
why is the brewery called Dissolver? Why don't you like vowels? Uh, no, we couldn't and... afford anymore. Yeah, we couldn't <laughs> afford any more vowels. That's it. <laughs> um, and where uh, does the inspiration for the names come from? Because there's some really great names in there. Yeah, we uh, we are very big fans of surrealist comedy and surrealist um art in general so anything that's going to kind of move outside of the norm and so like uh, tim and eric awesome show auntie donna um things like things of that nature um so we a lot of the names come are like slight references to a lot of that kind of humor and material that we've just garnered over the years we have a very long list of things and then sometimes we'll pull from like the current zeitgeist um but in terms of art it is 90 i would say like over 90 percent mike my business partner making almost all of the labels the hustle series is a local artist that goes by jado lantern and uh she crushes it so we use her for um the West Coast series because it maintains a cohesive feel and it allows us to have a local artist involved, which is important to us. And um, Mike and his design team do a majority of the other labels. And Oops All Reapers was, uh, so I messed up on the production side uh, in terms of schedule and had a happy accident. So uh, that was actually the first label that Mike used AI for. So Mike used his label artwork, plugged it in, and then a couple prompts, and it made the Oops All Reapers label. So it's That's like an AI cool. version of Mike. Pretty cool. Absolutely. Uh, and, and in terms of Reapers, what are Reapers in your mind? Because I know, you know, I ask this question as someone who loves growing chilies. So whenever I yeah. see Reaper, I'm just thinking Carolina Reapers. But are we, oh, are we, we, are we Reapers? Uh, or? Yeah, Grim Reaper. We use a, a big old Grim Reaper and like, that's kind of made out of a hop. It's like a logo of ours that we use. We opened on a Friday the 13th. Like we're all, it's all very uh, weird, spooky, macabre surrealism. I, I love it. I also love the idea because it, this is something that would have happened in my life. And I've made Carolina Reaper beer, for instance, that like, you know, it was supposed to be a whole range of different, you know, chilies involved. And then all I used was Reapers and no one was ever came, came back to the restaurant again. That's a plausible point in my life, can I say. We, uh, we made one mango habanero beer and it was like almost a fist fight with the sales team. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and they actively said, like, you're not allowed to bring any more of those. But we tried, we got one. So that's well, okay. We made a chocolate stout. This is just with mates, made a chocolate stout uh, with Carolina Reapers in it. It was amazing. It was it lasted about 10 years as well. One of those, yeah, about 10, <laughs> yeah. could have even been probably closer to 12 or 15%, to be honest. Just an amazing tasting beer. Now I got to make some of that. Yeah. It's uh, not for the faint-hearted, but neither is your neither is anything else that you guys do. So that shouldn't be too confronting for you. I'm, I'm absolutely sure. Uh, I'm I'm fascinated. There's how much interaction is there between the brewing side of things and the design side? Is there a bit of a you know when the names come up, or is it just literally yeah? Here's another beer. We'll put this label on it. Or is there a bit of a discussion beforehand as to how these things will fit together, or even between the brewers when you're sitting down and designing the beer? Do you let the team who are going to do the can art know what's going to be sort of coming through? Yeah. So originally when we started, uh, everybody was heavily involved and it was like, I've got this name for this beer and, or I've got an idea for this label and Mike had ideas for beers. 
And uh, after about like six to eight months, we quickly realized like we should stay in our own lanes. So uh, the running joke is that like my team makes it taste good. His team makes it look good. Uh, so, <laughs> so like unless we have a really good idea for one or the other, we try to <laughs> just stay out of each other's way. No, I, I think there's some really good advice. And, and in terms of the actual sales team, how much do they get involved in some of that stuff, in those oh, discussions? Or do they just have to find a way to sell whatever you come up with? Uh, so we only get to pull the like, shut up and sell it card so much. Uh, so, so the sales team actually uh, works directly with uh, both the design and the production team. And they are kind of the, they bridge the gap. So they say like, these are the beers that we need for this quarter. These are the beers that we need for this season. These are the beers that should be repeated. These sold well, these didn't sell well. So let's add this or mix that from next month, things like that. So the sales team is largely the driving force because it's data-driven analytics versus me being like, I'll just do whatever and it's going to be great. And Mike being like, I'm going to put Grim Reapers on everything. So it's like a... I'm just envisaging a whole lot of, you know, cheesecake sours with Grim Reapers on them and a very confused drinking public trying to understand how any of these things could possibly fit together. (laughs) Yeah, if uh, if sales and marketing had their way, it wouldn't be too far off of that. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have a couple of audience questions in a minute, but obviously we we have one question that we always ask everyone who comes on the show, and that's our traditional cool room question. Uh, Thinking not just about cool rooms and large walk-in refrigeration places in breweries, but also in hotels or liquor stores you might have worked in. We all know that it's in the back of the cool room where the real things happen and where the good times and bad times are amplified 100%. Is there something that springs to mind for you when I say, tell us something that's happened to you in a cool room or something you've seen in a cool room and absolutely do not mention the name of the venue that it was that it happened in? Yes. Uh, One of the breweries that I used to work for, uh, we did a lot. They allowed us quite a bit of freedom in terms of like, oh, if anybody's got a weird idea, we'll try it out. So uh, one of the owners had uh, an idea for he heard about tapache it's like a a spontaneously fermented pineapple but it's made um largely in south american prisons it's like uh, prison wine essentially i I think we've actually had one out at black arts in melbourne where, where basically it's more or less the core and the skins and the yeast comes from the skins so the bits of the pineapple you don't eat effectively Yes. So we actually just are about to bottle one um, at Dissolver, but uh, we made one at this brewery. I thought you were going to say in a prison, but sure. (laughs) We we forgot. We totally forgot about it. And then we were changing venues to move the brewery to a new location and the cool room got turned off and uh, the beer was like, so it was, it, it got pretty warm in there and it was that, mixed with a blueberry sour that was also in that room that got left and forgotten about for like arguably too long. And so it was myself. It's not arguable, is it? It's definitely too long. (laughs) It was not arguable. It was like the combination of both of those smells. I've never had a more visceral physical reaction to anything in my life, but like, thank God the whole facility was already shut down and we were just cleaning stuff out and it was 
but that was the that was my worst school room experience you asked the question i was immediately like i was back i was there ptsd uh, look I'm, I'm sorry to make you go through that i've got to tell you that compared to people who've worked in uh meat works or even in hospitals that's not the worst one we've ever had so Feel free yes. to go back and check out the previous cool room answers that we've had along the way in the previous 165 episodes, dear listeners. We're getting to that last bit of the uh, the afternoon or the evening. So grateful for your time. We've got some audience questions. And James, if you uh, want to unmute and ask your couple of questions, we might have time for one more after after yourself. What you got? Thanks, David. And thanks, Vince. It's been wonderful hearing about your brewery and and all your insights um, i'm sure a lot of the listeners will enjoy their get of it um uh, i wanted to know about whether now the world's reopened whether you have any plans for collaborations either domestically or internationally or you know is it something on your radar to like maybe come and join dj and do something at mountain culture Oh my God. I would love nothing more than to come down and spend some time with uh, DJ and Harriet and the crew. Um, I've known them for seven years now. DJ was like one of the first people that I met when I moved to Asheville. Um, But we are going to be attending our first international beer festival in France, in Marseille, in, um, in April. So that will be the closest that we've been to Australia physically. And then uh, the hope is later next year. Uh, oh my God, this year, we're already in January. What? Uh, that we will be able to get down to um, Australia. I still haven't seen Mountain Culture, so I owe them a visit. Awesome. And um, I'm not yeah. sure whether, I'm, I'm now going through in my head whether France is any closer to Australia. Sure, let's go with that. It, it does depend a bit <laughs> on which coast. I'm there doing yeah, my coast, which coast is closer thing. That's all good. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I guess it depends on where you, yeah. Let's not bog down. <laughs> let's not bog down on that at midnight American time, James. What's your What's your other question, my friend? Well, I've really enjoyed the chat about hops because you know that's something we we really enjoy on the podcast. But but also, I wanted to know like a couple of things really, like whether you'd considered a fresh hop brew um, using local product, and uh, maybe if you've got your eye on some other international hops because you know New Zealand, Australia, we're all making some pretty wild hops. Um, that are cranking out all the time and whether you get exposure to them and you get to do like trial batches and maybe that's something you're interested in. Yeah, so we're going to be participating in a trial batch, uh, a trial hop from uh, Hop Revolution this year, which I'm pretty excited about. So that'll um, be harvested in a few months and I'm very excited about that. Um, But in terms of uh, fresh hops, we... This was the first year that we skipped it because this was the first year that we massively increased wine production. So just uh, my time, I straight up couldn't handle all of the fresh hops with the schedule and the brewery. And we had our biggest uh, grape shipment coming in like scheduled for that week. So I couldn't potentially have the overlap, but we uh, have been getting fresh hops from uh, shipped directly overnight, like via a refrigerated truck from Michigan for the past couple of years. And then now that they're doing, I believe it's Yakima Chief does cryogenically frozen fresh hops. So you can get fresh, you can do fresh hop beers all the time. And uh, we 
just saw our friends at Pint House Pizza in Austin, Texas did one and Resident Culture just did one as well in Charlotte, North Carolina. So I'm actively trying to get my hands on those to do like a, uh, you know, you got to try it for yourself. Doesn't really taste like fresh hops, you know, but uh, it's my, like my favorite smell outside of an Imperial Stout Brew Day is fresh hop brew day. That's an awesome yeah. answer. I think we should wrap things up there because we know that game of charades has somehow been going on for a couple of hours behind you there. You've been uh, very attentive in uh, in your concentration on this despite all of that and um, so grateful for your time uh, today, tonight, your time uh, and cannot wait for you to make it down to Australia. We want to do a live show with you down here when you do and um Please give us the socials so that we can make sure that we follow your story uh, through social media. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, at Dissolver, D-S-S-O-L-V-R. And then uh, I'm Vince underscore Tursi, T-U-R-S-I. Uh, I don't post as much interesting stuff, but Dissolver is pretty cool. And Mike is uh, Death underscore Shakes. Uh, and he posts a bunch of weird stuff all the time. So I thought it was going to be death fun. underscore drinks macro lager or something like that. <laughs> well, just because his favorite beer is macro lager doesn't mean that, you know, he's going <laughs> to give it to. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. No, no, love the beers and just an awesome opportunity for us here in Australia to, uh, to get to talk to you about them. So grateful for your time. Oh, man. Thank you so much, guys. This is great.